Welcome to a much belated Biota.org chat. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today we pick up in a conversation held with Gerald de Jung and myself about two weeks ago with regards to his new development of Darwin at home and whether it is taking a distinctly Lamarckian approach. So... What was lost in the last edit of the last chat was the discussion with regards to how you construct the super stem cells to not be part of a Lamarckian simulation as opposed to a Darwinian simulation, and then really me thinking out loud about whether in a Darwinian simulation for what you were doing, you could approach it from almost a Lamarckian angle. Now, you've had a couple of weeks to think about that. What, what's your... What's your analysis with regards to that? Yeah, you know, in, in one way, I've, I've read a lot of Dawkins, and I, I, I think a lot in terms of, you know, selection and, and uh, as the whole engine. And, uh, you know, the, any, anything Lamarckian doesn't seem right. But that's partly because uh, he was talking about biology. And he was talking, you know, he was talking scientifically. He was saying, look, in what we observe it doesn't appear to be the case that things work in a Lamarckian fashion. What you're trying to do with these kind of super stem cells sounds initially to be Lamarckian. There needs to be some underlying structure. I can, I can, uh, I can actually, I would like to convince you that there's nothing Lamarckian about it at the moment. Uh, not that I wouldn't consider it. I mean, what I was trying to say was, uh, you know, uh, Darwin may have, uh, or uh, uh, Dawkins, Darwin may have observed that, you know, Dar- um, Lamarckian uh, evolution doesn't happen in the biological world, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be done in uh, in an artificial world. In terms of the stem cell analogy, what led into it, which was unfortunately edited out of the last chat, was my own musing that you would need to have some additional component that related to some kind of... I mean, it's genotype versus phenotype, fundamentally, that you need something that is modelling some genetics that it can change subtly but will ultimately define whether a foot is grown or an eye is grown or something like that. You need the, the underlying structure as well. And I wasn't sure whether there was a kind of Lamarckian chaos element to it. I think the way you have to look at it is the, the changes have to be sort of uh, orthogonal or completely uncorrelated to what I, what eventually happens. Up till now in Darwin at Home, I've been very careful to, to maintain that. They, they have, you know... the. The mutations are completely. The, the, there's nothing planned. There's nothing. Uh, nothing that changes during a lifetime. So what you're saying is that most of them would grow feet, and then one of them would mutate and grow an eyeball instead. And if that was of evolutionary advantage, then it would have children that would propagate that would then have eyeballs instead of feet. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, though, imagine. Uh, you know, you, you have to keep placing yourself inside of one of these intervals because that's that's the actual cell so suppose uh, you know suppose you had a, a a mutation and you were uh, you were situated somewhere down one of the legs and you're more or less uh, vertical and you decide you know by by mutation you have no idea why but somehow you have the certain compulsion to every every few cycles to take a peek uh, you know, in your direction, which is from uh, from you know one one uh, one joining point to the next, which in your case points straight upwards. So you know you you'll observe every once in a while, but you won't see a damn thing. So you know eventually that mutation will have proved to have no real purpose. And if there's any advantage to not doing it, in other words, spending a bit more time being a muscle, for example, then uh, it will probably once again disappear. Here's an interesting idea. 
because I think certainly in books like The Ancestor's Tale, but also in my observations of other biological treaties with regards to how very bizarre things happen in nature, the eyeball example is a good one because what would happen, or what may happen, is that the limb then falls down and mysteriously sees the world, and then the... the the creature starts slithering rather than standing upright and these kind of things. Do you have a sense that, and this is, of course, all predictive in in terms of discussing what may happen in the simulation, but do you have a sense that certain organs like eyes and perhaps fat stores and perhaps neurons and these kind of things will have heavier weighting than bones or muscles or these kind of things that are that are you know have a different quality to them or do you think that everything will will have equal weighting in terms of its productive use i i really have trouble predicting predicting something like that um and one thing i'm i'm working on right now which you know working on in terms of like thinking about from time to time because i haven't had a lot of time to code but um trying to uh work out some sort of communication uh, sort of structure or network within the body and it doesn't you know it doesn't have to be uh, it doesn't have to resemble uh, a biological creature so directly but there has to be some way to uh, you know to, if if uh, should you decide you know you happen to be up on top and uh, and you know facing in, a, in an appropriate direction and horizontal and you decide at some point that you know by by accident or mutation that you decide to be an eye and suddenly you see things and you start reporting that how do you report that to the muscles and uh, you know that's that's and what can you report how can you affect their behavior uh, interestingly enough i was listening to one of the many science podcasts that i love to listen to when i go for walks and uh, there was a guy talking about the salamander and ba- and and they made a, a sort of a salamander robot and uh, interestingly the the way he described it was in, in the biology of the salamander there's 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 a sort of a cycle built in to take steps and it's not sort of sensory based you know, it's got some sort of a, a rhythm to it, but he could prove scientifically that it wasn't based on, you know, individual sensory reactions and, and you know, some sort of cycle in that sense, uh, you know, involving the senses. There was a sort of a cycle inside. And the modification that could happen then is it could be sort of, could be sort of reduced or enhanced. So there's this sort of automatic, almost timing cycle, really, in the legs. If we return to the discussion that we had on possible worlds with regards to ants. This was exactly my thinking in the ant example and something that I've reflected on over the past couple of weeks is that my own view with regards to possible worlds, particularly possible worlds that are in any way simulated or shown to a user for choices to be made uh, that affect evolution and things of that nature, is that the possible worlds that are shown need to be in some sense meaningful and I think that was the distinction that you and I were having in that discussion certainly when I reflect on ants and even human movement, even bipod or quadrupod movement, is that there are obviously things that could happen, I mean you know, you could spontaneously start kicking or the ants could do can-cans or things like that, I mean there are a wide variety of possibilities but within that there are probable limitations and I think what fascinates me about what you were saying about the salamanders of my own thinking on ants and i think is it rodney brooke at mit who did all the robotic ant stuff i mean the the uh, the ability for these things to be maybe not hardwired but at least to work synchronously needs to be part of it as well and maybe that cuts down the number of possible worlds i remember seeing 
I forget now the name, but there was some guy who who, who built tiny insect-like things. They did what they did because of like three or four transistors. It was a very, very, very minimal sort of you know cycle system built in, and they were actual physical things. You know, you would sort of solder some stuff together. I, I think the earliest of that comes through the fifties, and my memory of the fellow's name. Uh, isn't particularly good, but when I saw Bruce Damer most recently, he was with a fellow who works at NASA on robotics, who had never explored the most primitive end of robotics. And I thought, as you've discussed, that what's fascinating about robotics is that you can get a lot of intelligence out of a very small chipset, basically. And moreover, it's actually quite productive to have a smaller chipset, particularly if you're sending these things off to Mars and things like that. You want to have you want to have certain redundancies built into the system. Well, I was listening to Noble Ape uh, just uh, on my bike the other day, and uh, you were talking about uh, something that you've mentioned before. You're like reintroducing the predators. And uh, to me, that's just an absolutely fascinating thing to be able to say. It's something that I could never say about what I'm doing because uh, if I if I ever uh, see something like uh, predation, I'll be blown away. It, it's a bit like a, a, a baby learning to kind of move in initial phases. If if there was a large predatorial creature that preyed on the baby moving, but basically there wouldn't be very many babies left. And the problem with Noble Ape was in its infancy, I thought, great, you know, I'll put in these fierce predatorial cats that will prey on the apes. And you run the simulation with these entities in the simulation, particularly in the early phases of the simulation when I was still ironing things out. And there weren't a lot of apes after a very short amount of time. So I thought, okay, I, I need to make this more utopian, remove the large predatorial cats and just let just tune the apes wandering, so to speak. But the simple the simple fact that you can say uh, large predatorial cats. I mean, this is uh, try to imagine, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to uh, evolve something like an insect body. True. You need to appreciate as well, when I first started developing Noble Ape, bone structure and musculature were central tenants in the in, in initial simulation. I constructed both uh, the predatorial cats and the apes in terms of a skeletal system that, you know, had various precession properties with regards to movement. And that was part of the simulation? It was an immense, naive, and truly wonderful wonderful period that created a lot of drawings a lot of code and not really it's it's a bit like i guess maybe over engineering some kind of vehicle that then cannot actually move because it's weighed down by its own engineering so to speak but no it was a very idealistic period you're sort of uh, i mean uh, interestingly uh, this is sort of uh, the like you were trying to make uh, uh, initially uh, a sort of a physical place uh, where you know you've actually got musculature, musculature and and movements and that, and then eventually see some sort of you know cooperative or uh, predatory behavior or whatever. But you know I'm starting from the point of trying to trying to build a body from uh, you know and to uh, and so it's fascinating that you would. Uh, uh, what I'm trying to figure out then is if it's not that, what is it? Because this is all that I do. I mean, what what fascinates me about artificial life developers is that we all start from different places. We all have some kind of introduction to artificial life, typically through uh, reading various seminal books. But from that, we take from what interests us and construct simulations which are very, very different and have very, very different initial premises and have very, very different assumptions about what life is and assumptions about what they're looking to explore and these kind of things. But what fascinates me is the diversity of artificial life simulations from what is probably just half a dozen books at the... at the Well, I mean, we probably both started developing around the same time. And in my own reflection, the books that 
caused me to start developing artificial life. Some of them weren't even artificial life techs. I mean, that's what fascinates me, but just the idea of the potential. Can you talk a little bit about your own kind of formative ideas and the books and the things that led you to to start the simulation as you have? Yeah, I was just thinking this just now. Uh, you could actually make serious argument that, that what you and I have done doesn't even overlap slightly. In, in, cert- in certain ways, it doesn't overlap at all. I, I think the, the term artificial life is problematic in that regard. But at the same time, I also think that there are shared... I mean, obviously, this chat, amongst other things. But there are shared discussions that can be had. And it's not that we're doing something that is fundamentally different. It's just we're approaching things from considerably different, you know, initial conditions, considerably different premises. And, I mean, ideally, I think we move towards similar conclusions. Well, let me me describe a little bit where where it all comes from. Because uh, it's it's interesting. I didn't... uh, my, My impression of what you did is you sort of came into it from uh, from philosophy or something like that and uh, and then you know started uh, started playing around and got fascinated by it but i came in from a completely different angle i was um, fascinated by geometry it was like years and years and years until i decided to play around and see if these things could actually move so uh, i used to be uh, we used to have a, a sort of a club uh, on on internet on some on a mailing list and we would sit there and we would build structures and and i i i built the the software to, to have these structures built and they were all elastic intervals it was the same sort of thing that's happening now uh but we would build them and we would experiment with them and we would sort of talk about them and see what they could do eventually i ended up building structures that i translated into um things you could see in uh, in active worlds and there was a whole uh, huge dome full of uh, creature-like uh, structures that that were built with my software but none of it moved and none of it had any sort of uh, you know any anything resembling artificial life really it was sort of uh, fun to build structures that looked like an insect or something but that was the end of it, it we were building all sorts of different kinds of structures we were experimenting with uh, sort of like Buckminster Fuller ideas of you know how does uh, how does a tensegrity actually work uh, you know what does it feel like to uh, to play around with the tensegrity and uh, i don't know if you know tensegrity is a very strange uh form of structure what you what you what you have is um the the pushing elements don't touch each other and they're sort of suspended in a network of tension and that's the fascinating thing about it you can actually build structures using tensegrity and uh they have a certain robustness about them because the 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 pushing elements are usually solid and the pulling elements are like cables so if the if the if the the bars don't touch each other then you have a whole different dynamic the whole structure the structure as a whole uh functions as a unit so these were all very fun things to play with and so i came from the geometry from playing with the geometry and also the the you know the iterative sort of pseudo-physical geometry and then sometime uh, quite a bit later i started playing around with seeing if i could make them uh, you know learn to do things in, in clarification on your initial comments i think i mean my my background interest wasn't necessarily philosophy with regards to the development of noble ape i was actually more interested in software and the propagation of ideas through software which may be philosophy in some regard but i thought that really the only the only uh, productive motivation of any previously written on paper discipline in some regard was through software and this was a kind of fascinating 
point in my own thinking. Now, returning to the Buckminster Fuller ideas, when you use this, the terminology of tenses and things like that, I always return to my kind of physical chemistry reading and, and background study. And it always fascinates me that when you start talking about tenses and tensegrity and these kind of things, I always see crystalline structures and these kind of things. But you are fundamentally talking about it as, as almost architectural things, aren't you? First of all, let me let me be a little clear here. Um, one point to clarify, tensors and tensegrity have nothing to do with each other, as far as I know, at least. So those are those are two completely different things. Tensegrity is just a, a name for a certain kind of structure. But aren't tensors the, the mathematical representation of the things that hold the structures together? Um, if they are, then, then it's strange that I wouldn't know about it. Okay. It's all vectors. But my understanding was that tensors were for particular kinds of force vectors that were bound at, at points. They could be, but uh, that's... Uh, I, I looked into it a little bit. I never really understood what they were, but they were... Uh, it's much much more It's much more complicated than what I'm doing, put it that way. It's just pure vectors. But they're vectors that hold forces in what you're saying as well. I mean, the, the joining cables and even the solid structures are actually containing forces in order to to hold everything together so that's the mathematical representation surely you can't really speak of solid things in 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 my uh, in my geometry thing here what you have to actually think about is the four dimensions because uh, it, it it's not meaningful really until the geometries are experiencing time so you know they become elastic of course when they exist in time so these elastic intervals they're just uh, every every tick of the clock they decide where what to do in the next tick of the clock and without the clock operating the whole thing is completely static and then you get you get the crystalline ideas that you've got when you think of this kind of geometry and when mo- most people think of this kind of geometry you know whenever you see triangles and tetrahedrons and things you think okay that's crystal if you're interested in contributing to the biota.org conversations interviews chat feed either in audio or commentary or questions or things of that nature, please get in contact with me, tom at noblape.com. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Look forward to you tuning into the next podcast. <laughs>